My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, guys, this is going to be the episode where if you're a therapist and you are curious about how to do exposures or you're curious about how to do exposure therapy more effectively, this is going to be helpful for you. Um, It's also going to be helpful for you if you or someone you know or love is suggested to be doing exposure therapy and you're just like, eh, I don't really know. That sounds kind of mean. I just, I can't picture what it would possibly look like. So I'm going to go over kind of what the golden rules are for exposure therapy or what the must-haves of exposure therapy are. So if you haven't heard any of my podcasts before, which hopefully this isn't the first, but exposure therapy, just super quick summary, is exposure and response prevention. So exposure and response prevention is the gold standard treatment for OCD and anxiety, and it basically involves exposures, which are systematic assignments of challenging things decided upon between you and your therapist and response prevention or ritual prevention. So having you engage in these exposures or these challenging situations while also resisting the rituals or responses that you would typically do um, either before, during, or after the challenging event to make yourself feel better. So with exposure and response prevention, you are basically doing this challenging thing or this anxiety-provoking thing, and just allowing yourself to feel anxious after. So you're disengaging or resisting any rituals or safety behaviors that you would normally do before, during, or after. And I've heard a lot lately that, you know, ERP isn't making intuitive sense to people, and sometimes parents are feeling like it's mean or it's, you know, it's not right. And I have a lot of feelings about that, but I kind of want to just go over kind of what the basic rules are of exposure therapy and just the basics of what you can expect if you or someone you know is going through exposure therapy. And also if you're a therapist, some key elements that you're going to want to make sure are involved in your treatment and some things that you're going to want to make sure are not involved in the treatment if you're wanting to provide it effectively. So first things first, An exposure has to be anxiety-provoking and scary. If it's not anxiety-provoking and scary, then it's not an exposure. So for better or for worse, I've had some clients that I work with try to tell me like, oh yeah, it's really anxiety-provoking for me. It would be an exposure for me to pet a dog and come to find out like they, it wasn't anxiety-provoking for them at all. So uh, if it's not anxiety-provoking, then it's not an exposure. 
Um, and exposure inherently has to expose yourself or expose your your client to an anxiety-provoking situation. So there should be an element of discomfort there. There should even maybe be an element of like almost avoidance there. Like they should not want to be doing these things. If they wanted to be doing them, then they would have already been doing them, right? Like they wouldn't have had to come to you for treatment for the motivation and the accountability to make it happen. So it has to be scary and anxiety provoking. Otherwise, it's not an exposure. Second, you have to make sure that you have solid response or ritual prevention. And if you don't, you're basically just encouraging or allowing the person to become more obsessive and compulsive and more anxious. Because what we're doing with ERP is we're essentially, we're not necessarily adding anything. We're just eliminating a portion of the uh, of the steps that they've been doing, right? So they do this anxiety-provoking thing and they ritualize. We're just having them do the anxiety-provoking thing and not ritualize. So think of it as less, think of it less as though you're giving them something to do. Think of it as though you're just encouraging them to live life more intentionally and more purposefully, obviously, and without these additional rituals or without these additional behaviors included. If you don't have the response prevention or the ritual prevention, you are literally just doing what you've always done. (laughs) So if I give someone an an exposure to hold on to a high traffic doorknob and they just go wash their hands afterwards, and that's my recommendation, I'm okay with that. That's literally no different from what they would normally be doing. So maybe they would be avoiding touching the hand, the the doorknob. So maybe it's a step in the quote unquote right direction that they are touching it, but then they're washing after. But you're still reinforcing all those relationships in your brain. You're still engaging with that fear conditioning in the brain. So if you don't have solid ritual prevention or solid response prevention for before, during, and after your exposure, then it's also not going to be effective. Want to make sure that you definitely have that in place. And if you feel like you can't get that in place for yourself or for your client, find a way to make the exposure more manageable. Ask them or ask yourself, what are some ways, what are some things that you could do that would be more manageable, but still also a little bit challenging? So maybe just finding ways to shape down that exposure a little bit. Two other really important elements of exposures that you need to have are that they need to be prolonged and they need to be repetitive. So there are some other models of exposure therapy that indicate that you can kind of just like randomly do exposures and that's more, that mimics life more and and that's effective, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about right here. What I'm trained in and, and what I'm talking about right now is this idea of repetitive and prolonged exposure. So we really want your exposures to be repetitive, meaning just again and again and again and again. And let's say that I always come back to my example of bees. So let's say that I was in treatment for my fear of bees. I had, let's say I have an exposure to go outside and lay in a garden or to lay in the grass. It wouldn't be effective or as effective for me to go and do that just once. It would be most effective for me to go and do it several times. And some places might have you do it a certain set of times. I typically have people do them at least five times. Um, just to get that repetition in. And the reason for that is because your brain needs to learn that this is not, that this is not novel, that this is kind of boring. 
So I always talk to my clients about how if you've ever listened to a song again, like, and you either love it or you hate it and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sick of hearing this song. Or you're like, oh my gosh, this song is awesome. If you listen to it again and again and again and again and again, if you really, really like it, it kind of comes back down to this more like midline baseline of you don't really like it as much anymore. And actually, if you have a song stuck in your head, as much as you would like to avoid it and as much as you have this drive to never listen to that song again and turn off the radio and blah, 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 if you actually listen to it again and again, that's the way to get it out of your head, you guys. So moral of the story is if you want something to pretty much have no emotional reaction at all, you need that repetition. And that's what we're trying to do with exposures. We're trying to have you habituate to this emotional response. And, a, and and basically learn that you can hang out in the grass and maybe you get stung by a bee, maybe you don't. You will either learn that you didn't get stung by a bee as frequently as you did, or you'll learn that you got stung by a bee and you managed the situation, or you'll learn that you tolerated the anxiety for that period of time that you probably weren't estimating that you'd be able to withstand that anxiety for. So Lots of learning also takes place in these repetitive cycles of exposure. The second um, aspect here that we want is that we would like for it to be prolonged. So I'm not going to just be able to go outside and lay in the grass really quick and then, okay, I'm anxious, I did it, and then I'm going to be able to just like pick up and leave. The reason why that's not effective is because as soon as I leave, my anxiety is going to drop. And consciously or not, my brain is going to now condition me leaving with, I feel better. So that's not good because that just builds that fear response. It builds that avoidance response in my brain that in order to feel better, I need to get out of this situation. I need to no longer be laying in the grass. And so what I, as a therapist, would want my clients to experience instead is you can start out being anxious doing this thing. You're going to sit with it for several minutes, and you're going to be less anxious doing the same exact thing. So ideally, what would happen is instead of going out and laying in the grass and then getting right back up, you would go out and lay in the grass, and you would wait until you experience what we call habituation. I'll get into what habituation kind of looks like, how you know if you've reached it, how you know if something's getting in the way of you reaching habituation. But essentially, you want to wait for your anxiety to come down by about half. And then at that point, once you reach that habituation, then you can get up and leave. Because now you've not paired you leaving the situation with a decrease in anxiety. Your anxiety decreased in the same situation that you started in. So that's really where a lot of the learning takes place. And that is a really, really cool aspect of treatment. When you can get that habituation and you start to have that lower and lower anxiety, doing things that you were doing before with really high anxiety. So some ways that you can identify that someone has habituated or has come down in their anxiety response during an exposure, they may just subjectively rate that. So they may use a numeric scale. So let's say you're using a scale of zero to 100 or zero to 10. You could easily have the person or identify for yourself, you know, what was your anxiety when you first started? What was your anxiety, you know, you know, after a couple of minutes? And, and once you come down by half of that number, then you're good to go. Then you know that you have successfully habituated. You may also just subjectively have the person verbally report that. So 
hey, like, how, how are you feeling right now? Are you feeling about half as, as all worked up as you did when you first did this exposure? Are you feeling about half as anxious as you did when we first started? So on and so forth. They might just elicit that already without you having to ask for it. So they may say like, yeah, I'm not really as worked up as I was before. So those are all good signs. Um, you also want to make sure that you're asking maybe for the numeric number. So the objective um, number that they're giving you, but also relying on their self-report is really helpful too, because a lot of times people, especially with OCD and anxiety can struggle with the numbers. So someone's number might be always at a four. Yep. I'm at a four. Yep. 10 minutes later. Yep. I'm still at a four, but subjectively they may be able to indicate like, no, I, my anxiety is less. And so that's a little bit tricky. And there are some other conversations that you would have to have about that, say education about the rating scale that you're using. Hey, I noticed that your scale, the number that you gave me was this and it was the same, but you're telling me that things got easier. What's your, what do you make of that? Um, so yeah, just making sure that you're asking them about the number, but also not neglecting to ask them about their subjective experience in the moment as well. Um, sometimes you are just, you find that your client is also like, they may not, they might kind of flatline at a high level of anxiety. Like, nope, I don't feel like my anxiety is going any lower. Nope. It's not going any lower. They may do it for a couple of times or do it for a couple of days even. And maybe you find yourself or you find your client to be kind of stagnant with that exposure, but check in with them because they may be willing to take it a step further regardless, which is indicative that there has been some habituation. So let's say that I have someone who is afraid of laundry rooms for whatever. They feel like the laundry room is contaminated. Let's say that I have them start out by standing right outside of the laundry room. Let's say that they flatline and they flatline and their anxiety is a, a constantly a three with that and we're just not making any progress. But the person indicates, yeah, but I think I'm ready to take a step inside of the doorway now. That's a good sign. As long as the person feels like and can say with confidence that, yep, I can do that little increase in the exposure and not ritualize, that's a good sign. You are able to kind of move forward at that point. I'm so excited to share with you guys a planner that I've had for months now, and now I have an absolutely incredible offer so that you can enjoy it with me. I've tried yearly planners, blank diaries, and everything in between, all the way from back when I was in high school. Silk & Sonder is the perfect planner that I've been waiting for for years. Silk & Sonder is a self-care monthly planner and journal subscription service, including monthly, weekly, and daily planning pages, plus activities that change each month and are targeted to help with your self-care. You'll get coloring pages, recipes, habit trackers, journaling prompts, and more. Silk & Sonder offers monthly, quarterly, annual, and gift subscriptions. It's the first ever monthly planning experience aimed to empower you to live the life that you've always wanted. Inspired by a new theme each month, they hand curate, design, and deliver each issue straight to your doorstep. You'll love each month's blend of productivity and planning, introspection and mindfulness, and lifestyle content. I've been using mine for months and I'll honestly never go back to a regular planner ever again. For 25% off your order, head to my website at jennaoverbaugh.com and click on deals. 
sometimes you have to take risks with these things. Sometimes like that, you know, you, ideally you'll wait until your anxiety comes down to a super manageable level, but sometimes you kind of just got to rip the band-aid off. And unfortunately, there's no recipe. There like a lot of things in life, there's not like one 100% ideal or exact way to do it. You really have to work with a therapist one-on-one to determine these things and determine the rate that you're going and the route that you're going. So really important that you are working with a trained professional in ERP to help you navigate all these decisions. But it's okay as a therapist and as a client, if you're if you're struggling with this yourself, take some risks. You, it, It's tempting, I think, for, for people sometimes to like take these incremental steps with exposures. Like I got to, I can take one step closer to the laundry room. I can take one step closer to the laundry room. Well, that's okay too. And sometimes you may legitimately have to do that, but other times, sometimes you just got to do it, right? Like sometimes you just got to make that leap and sometimes you can take that risk and you might be surprised with yourself. Um, but definitely want to, like I mentioned previously, make sure that you're maintaining, maintaining that ritual prevention because that is of the utmost importance. We do not want to have anybody do anything, um, at least as an assignment, we don't want anybody to do an exposure and then ritualize after because, again, like I mentioned, we're just reinforcing that fear conditioning. We're just reinforcing that fear response all over again. So we talked about some of the must-haves for an exposure. We also talked about some of the ways that you can tell if your client or if, you're, if you yourself are experiencing this successful habituation but it doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> I would love for it to always work out that way. But um, unfortunately, and especially in the residential level of care where there are just such severe instances of OCD and anxiety, um, sometimes things go wrong. And this is where it's super important to have a therapist who's really well trained in ERP, to have someone who you trust and to be having these conversations with them so that you can have someone help you navigate these tough scenarios because they happen. And at the end of the day, ERP is just too freaking awesome and too legit and too evidence-based and too effective when it's done correctly to let these little sneaky things get in the way. So definitely be on the lookout for these things that are indicative or suggestive that a client is not experiencing successful habituation and therefore successful exposure work. So one thing that could be happening that could be preventing a lot of these things from working is that you're taking too sensitive of an approach. So again, if you're not willing to take those risks every once in a while as a client or as a therapist, consciously or not, you are maybe giving into this idea of avoidance, right? Like that you have to take everything so tentatively, that you're not able to withstand or handle the difficulty that comes from unexpected challenges, that you're not able or or you're not able to tolerate risks or the discomfort that comes with risks. So if you're just too ginger in your approach to exposure work, um, and if you are exhibiting that as a consistent pattern, that can be really, really dangerous and definitely lead to just some further conditioning of avoidance down the line. The number one thing I'd say that gets in the way are mental rituals or mental compulsions. And so This is really difficult, obviously, to see because you can't see them a lot of the times, right? Like there may be some behavioral manifestations of mental compulsions. Um, 
And a really well-trained therapist is going to be able to help you identify that. But if someone's giving themselves self-assurance in the middle of an exposure, that works the same way as a as an outward ritual, right? So if someone is holding on to a high traffic doorknob, a doorknob that a lot of people touch, maybe they're not washing their hands right after, but they're telling themselves the entire time, oh, this was just cleaned yesterday. Oh, this isn't that big of a deal. This will be over soon and I can just wash my hands after. That's all ritualistic thinking. That all is ritualistic in that it's repetitive. You're doing it to reduce your anxiety. And really what you need to be doing instead during an exposure for it to be effective is you need to just be letting yourself be anxious. And if you're engaging in these mental rituals, that's not what is going on, right? Like you're engaging in these rituals so that you can feel less anxious. So mental rituals can be really tricky. There's a lot of things that can happen, like the self-assurance, like I said. People can also just give into things like counting. Um, They can maybe actively be trying to distract themselves. They can be neutralizing. So if they're having bad thoughts, maybe they are actively thinking of something positive to kind of neutralize that thought. There are tons and tons and tons of examples of mental rituals and compulsions that get in the way. And so we want to just make sure as therapists, we are checking in with our residents about that. And if if they're not experiencing habituation, be checking in. This is probably the number one culprit. Some other things that could be going on along the lines of also ritualizing before, during, and after exposures. Maybe they're ritualizing before, during, and after exposures, and either the client is not willing to tell you what's going on, like they're being consciously deceptive about those rituals, and or what's probably more likely is that they're just not aware. So maybe they're not washing their hands immediately after they touch something that's contaminated, but maybe they're wiping their hands off on their pants. It's maybe just so subtle like that, like them just really quickly wiping their hands off. Um, But it might be so subtle that they don't even realize they're doing it. So just being really, really vigilant as someone who's struggling and or as a therapist, being super vigilant and having these really direct conversations and hopefully being able to provide some of that oversight so that you can make sure that that the person is not ritualizing or doing anything um, kind of before, during, or after. Also know that you can ritualize away an exposure hours later. So let's say someone has a sex, has sexual intrusive thoughts about the, the fact that, or the worry that they're going to become a pedophile. Let's say that it was an exposure for them to look at pictures of children um, or to walk by a child and smile at a child at the mall. Um, let's say they do a really great job with that exposure. They experienced habituation. They didn't ritualize in the moment. They sat with their anxiety. but at night that evening with their significant other, they confessed that they had to do this exposure with um, looking at a child. And the person confesses like, yeah, that they're afraid that they looked at the person wrong. So even though that ritual took place several hours after, it still totally negates what the person did before. So you can still engage in that fear conditioning and build that fear conditioning association even hours later. So you really just got to be on the lookout for these nasty, nasty behaviors and be holding yourself accountable to truly doing the exposure and maintaining the ritual prevention. That is honestly the number one most important thing. Um, Back to the two basic kind of principles of how to do exposures. Maybe it's not repetitive enough. 
So if someone is really struggling to get their assignments done, maybe they've only done them two times. Um, Maybe they need to just up the ante a little bit. I think of exposure work as kind of like a medication. Like sometimes people don't need a whole, whole lot. Sometimes people need more of it. So just, you know, taking that into consideration, if someone's not habituating, maybe they just need a higher dose of the ERP. Maybe they need for it to be a little bit more prolonged. Maybe they need for it to be a little bit more repetitive. So definitely looking out for those things as well. It's also possible that other people are getting in the way of the exposure being effective. So it's possible that the therapist is maybe giving inadvertent reassurance. So maybe by saying things during the exposure, like um, let's say after a social anxiety exposure, someone gives a presentation or someone starts a conversation. Maybe afterwards the therapist says, you did a really great job. That might be totally well-intentioned and positive reinforcement in, you know, intention there, but it might be reassurance too. So if in terms of social anxiety, the fear is that the person didn't perform well or that they would be judged negatively, but then the therapist or someone else follows up with that exposure by saying, yeah, you did great. That was great that's going to inadvertently kind of affect everything. So you just want to make sure that, you know, that you're not engaging as a therapist, that you're not engaging in any of these rituals inadvertently. Want to make sure that family members are hopefully on board and also not engaging in these rituals for them later on. Um, And you want to make sure that your residents and your your clients, that they feel good about the exposure. I like to take a more collaborative approach. I think that it should always follow that line of thought too. Um, I think clients will be much better and more willing to do homework assignments, especially things that are anxiety provoking when they have a little bit of a say as to what they can work on. Now, just a therapist side note here, we can't always 100% let let the client guide and dictate what they work on because sometimes that might be avoidance, right? Like sometimes people might be so fearful of their contamination, they don't want to mess with their contamination, but they're willing to work on their social anxiety. So we can't always let the client dictate 100%, but you you should as a therapist be giving your clients, and, and as a client too, like if you're in therapy for this, like be advocating for yourself, be advocating to have a say and to be collaborative with your therapist about what it is that you're working on. Because I know, I know me, like if I have a say in my work and what I get to do and how I get to do it, I'm much more willing to do it well. And so just working with your therapist along those lines, um, you might not feel comfortable doing these exposures. Again, like you should definitely feel like they're a little bit anxiety provoking. You should be outside of your comfort zone, but you should also be able to see the end game. You should also be able to understand where a therapist is coming from, and you should also have some stake in it. You should have some value that you're getting out of it. Um, Because if you don't, if it's not really aligned with your values, and if it's just something that your therapist gave you, and I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm doing it because my therapist told me to, and I don't agree, you're just not going to be in the right headspace. So, and, and and exposures are intense, man. Like you have to kind of be in the right headspace for it to work. So, so those are kind of the must-haves for exposure therapy. Those are what you can think of as kind of like the golden rules of exposure therapy. So, again, super helpful for therapists. 
super helpful, I think, for anybody going into treatment or in treatment for OCD or anxiety, and really helpful also for caregivers or family members who are a little bit hesitant, perhaps, and just don't know what this will look like. So I think these are always good things to keep in mind going into treatment. I know ERP and the concept of it is already so scary to some people. Um, So hopefully this makes you feel a little bit more on board with it. And hopefully it makes you think that it's just, it's kick ass because it totally is. Um, So yeah. So let me know if you guys have any questions. Um, If you can think of anything else too, always reach out. You can head to my website at jennaoverbaugh.com. Or find me on Instagram. I'm at jenna.overbaugh. Come and find me. We can nerd out together about exposure work and ERP. So I hope this was helpful. And until I hear from you guys, keep doing all the hard things. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.